We like to keep what's ours. And yet uh, we are actually called to give what's ours away. We are called to give ourselves away. I titled my message this morning out of, out of Philippians. I titled it, For Me to Live as Christ. And that's actually not Philippians chapter 2. You're thinking already in your mind because this is a room of people that, that know something about their Bible. And we've been, we've been journeying together, tracking through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to Philippi. We've been reading that together a bit. So you think, wait a minute. For me to live is Christ. That's that phrase that came out of chapter 1 last week. For me to live is Christ. The die is gain. That upside down sort of phrase. When I thought, I thought dying would be a sacrifice like Christ. I thought living was what was good or better. And yet, Paul says, to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. What does it mean to say, for me to live is Christ? Along with that, another phrase, somewhat scary if we think about it, in the passage last week, around about verse 27 or so of chapter 1, was Paul urging us then to follow in that example of living as Christ, to Live a life worthy of the gospel. Now think about that for a minute. What does that mean? That's a dangerous phrase because it could easily be misunderstood to think, I need to live in such a way that I am worthy of God's salvation in Christ. I need to live in such a way that I am worth saving. Is that what we mean by that? That is not at all what to live worthy of the gospel means. To live worthy of the gospel, the phrase means to live in harmony with, to live in a way that agrees with the gospel, to live in a way that shows the gospel. Okay, I know what, that, what those words mean, but I'm not sure what that looks like. And that's what Paul is going to unpack in Philippians chapter 2. As we move into chapter 2, he's going to start with some rhetorical questions, some assumptions. He's going to pose them as an if question. Is there any? Is there? Or if there is? And he's assuming the answer is, yes, there is. And those assumptions, the assurance that what he asks about is actually true, leads into a call, a command. In urging to action, a tip of, from if that's true, then this is what we must do. He gives an example out of that, and that example is one of the most theologically rich and deep passages in the New Testament. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. The reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning is we've spent time on it for the last, uh, for about six weeks over the Christmas season uh, in a consideration of what the incarnation means. That Jesus steps down. He being God lays aside his, laid aside the prerogatives or the rights of deity and he takes upon himself humanity and he comes in the likeness of men and he even lays down his life. He dies for us in order that we might have life. That, that humbling, the incarnation, the uh, point of Philippians chapter 2 is not that we would understand all that Jesus did. That's not the point of it, although theologians dig into that, that uh, uh, passage without end. We, pulling out and teasing out the nuances that are there. This has been a big deal and even with big disagreements all through church history because there is so much there. 
get. Paul gives it here as simply an illustrative, persuasive example. Look what Jesus did, and that's going to circle right back around then to the same command, the same urging, the same call upon our lives that he first gave in verses, say, 2 through 5. So, with that set up, there's, there's some questions or assumptions. Then there's a call to action. There's an example of it. And then again, we return to that same call of action. With that in mind, let's read Philippians chapter 2. I've given you the setup of what we're expecting. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you're using the church Bible to follow along, you'll find us on page 980. Philippians chapter 2 in verse 1. So... If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in mercy, complete, if so, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be clung onto, but he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, would you open your word to us? Would you help us to see, Father, as we consider this example of Jesus again, not merely for the rich theological truth of it, but, Father, for the implication upon our lives. Father, would you help us? Lord, as a church together and certainly each one of us individually before you, Father, for your pleasure, for your joy, would you call us by your word, would you strengthen us by your spirit to take another step in giving ourselves away for the sake of others, in following Jesus, and also in some way laying down our lives for the needs of another. We pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a ser- an initial series of questions. It's a, it's, it's a rhetorical device. Verse 1 is not meant to be unpacked necessarily and say, well, what is the love of Christ? What exhortation or, or, or call or encouragement to do something comes out of that love of Christ? And, and is it my love for Christ or Christ's love for me? What, 
What affection and sympathy is there? What, what fellowship of the Spirit? Is it fellowship of the same Spirit together, or is it fellowship created by the Holy Spirit? Those are all good questions, but they're not the point of verse 1. The point of verse 1 is to remind that all of this is part of the Christian life. It could be asked as a question, is there any motivating call to action in Christ? Does the love of Christ make any difference? Does it change anything about anything? Is there any spiritual bond and partnership as Christians in any affection and mercy? Does our Christian faith make any difference really? That's the question. Keep in mind, the question is not merely meant to be a, a guilt-laden question. It is intended to be a reminder of what is. Everything expressed in, in verse 1 is expressed in what's called a Greek first-class conditional. Now, you don't care about Greek grammar, but you need to know this little part of it. A first-class conditional is something that is stated as an if, if there is, but it's assuming that there is. If there is, as there is. It's assumed to be true where a different kind of conditional and a different structure is assumed to not be true. If that were true, though it's not, and then the statement proceeds. This is assumed to be true, so it's a question that reminds us there is a call to action in Christ inherent to our Christian faith. Our Christian faith has changed everything for us. That's why Paul in the book of Ephesians, he says to put off the old and to put on the new. Why? Because there is new to put on. There is new within that is intended to work out. Everything has changed. Well, if it's changed, for what? It, to what end? In what direction? What difference has it made? He says, if there is a difference, if everything has changed, then complete my joy, verse 2. Fill up my joy. Cause my joy to just overflow. Now, imagine this. Imagine just for a moment that the Apostle Paul is in heaven. Well, we believe that he is. But imagine he's actually looking down on your life. He's probably not. I would think if I were Paul in heaven, I'd be much more focused on the throne and the person of Christ and many other things than I would uh, your life or mine. But let's just pretend for a moment, okay? There Paul is watching your life. Now, what do you think would cause Paul to jump up and high five? For, what, what is that would cause Paul to say, yeah, fist bump? What is that would say, yes, 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 look at them, yes? What would bring that out in Paul, do you think? What would fill his joy? Because that which would fill Paul's joy here, I suspect, is that which would also fill and overflow God's joy. What is it that would most delight God in the lives of his children. That's worth knowing, isn't it? Don't you want your, parent, your kids to know as, 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 as parents? Don't you want them to know what it is that would tickle you most, that would make you smile, that would, that would cause your heart to sing? And we, as children of God, have that opportunity. Fill my joy. John, John expresses it this way. Okay, Paul's talking about his own joy here. But John, in 3 John, he also says this in 2 John. He says, I have no greater joy 
than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, when your children are little, you have no greater labor than to make your children walking in the truth, right? But when they're older, you lose that control. Hopefully you retain a little, a certain amount of of godly influence that they still look toward and and seek your wisdom and, and are happy for some input. But truth be told, our adult children are not nearly as happy for our, to receive our input as we are to give it, right? And yet you have no greater joy than when you hear, especially when you hear about it from somebody else, that you, of your kids walking in the truth. And what does that mean, to walk in the truth? Does that just mean keep the rules? Does that mean... The basics of obedience, don't do this and do that and, and do this thing, but don't do those things. Is, is that what it is to walk in the truth? I would suggest to you that if our notion of what it is to bring God joy by walking in the truth, to cause those apostolic high fives in heaven, if that's nothing more than mere obedience, do this and don't do that, then we are going to look a whole lot more like Moses than we are Jesus. Ooh, I heard that. (laughs) The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I had the chance to uh, talk to the kids in Iwana on Thursday night. They let me in about once a month. That's about all anybody can take, I guess. But once a month or so, I get to, I get to do the lesson for the kids in the TNT time. And, and uh, this, this last Thursday, my verse was, was John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. I am the truth. He's not just saying, I have truth, the truth about Jesus. He says, I am the truth. Could it be that to walk in the truth is to walk in Christ, to walk in, to live out the very life of Christ? What does that look like? Fill my joy, Paul says. Fill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Wait a minute. If you are one-minded, if you are, if you are having, having the same mind, if you all share the same love, if you are in full agreement, does that mean then that whatever that is, that mind that you share, that agreement that you have, that accord and that plan, that that's going to bring God joy? Wait a minute, the mafia has that. They are very focused around a particular mind as well, aren't they? It's just not the one we're hoping for. It's a mind that seeks to serve themselves. So there must be something more. There's a mind to share, but what mind is it? Well, verse 3 gives us a clue. Don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. Rivalry, competing against one another, or conceit, which exalts yourself up as more important. But in humility, count others more significant. Or the NIV study Bible, and, and we have a men's Bible study on Monday mornings at 8 o'clock where we talk about the... the um, the message that's coming. And, and one of the men pointed out a note in his NIV study Bible that, that had, a, had, a, had a nice explanation of that. Let me find it in my notes again so that I get it right. Worthy of preferential treatment. Consider one another worthy of preferential treatment. You see, it's not, it's not putting yourself down. It's considering somebody else valuable. That's the thrust here. 
Let each of you look out not only for your own interest. We have, don't have any trouble doing that. We will. Capitalism is founded on the, on the notion that a person, given the opportunity, will act in their own best interests. So we don't have any problem doing that, but look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the kind of mind. What, what, what does it look like? Give me an example of that. I'm glad you asked. It's exactly what Paul does. In some of the richest, deepest theology in the entire New Testament, Paul gives us an example of what this means, what kind of mind we're called to in our Christian faith. Have this mind among yourselves. Remember, it's a shared mind. It's one purpose. It's a pulling together in this direction. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations read, which is also in Christ Jesus. I like this, this, this reading, which is yours in Christ Jesus. God has given us a new mind. God has given us a new will and a new desire that is in Christ that, that calls us in a new direction into a higher plane. And what is that mind? Although he was in the form of God, equality with God. And we're not going to unpack all the details of this because we've done that over six weeks around Christmas time. The incarnation, how he emptied himself without ceasing to be God, but he lays aside all the rights and privileges of, of deity. And he takes upon himself humanity, the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A horrible death. A death that no human had the ability to impose upon him unless he lay his life down of his own accord. And he does. He humbled himself. Now, when Jesus humbled himself, that humility is important. He, he, when Christ humbles himself, he contradicts our own fallen self-absorption. Our self-focus, our, our, our fixation upon ourselves and our needs and what I want for me that is intrinsic to fallen humanity. And Jesus himself lays down his life. He humbles himself for others. Jesus did not have a low opinion of himself. He knew who he was. He knew who he was in relationship with his Father. He prays in John 17, just before the cross, about the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, and that the, that, that the Father would restore that glory to him again. And he does. His confidence through all of this is that God will exalt him in due time. He didn't have a low opinion of himself, but he had a high opinion of you, of your value, of my value. We were so important. That's another way to read. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We were so important to him, not important in ourselves, but so important and sought after and desired and loved by God that he went that far. He saw our needs as worthy of preferential treatment. Humility is different than humiliation. Humility is submission rather than self-assertion. 
I will submit myself to something for the good of others. This is the example that's set before us. Jesus and him laying down his life, willing, knowing who he is, and yet not insisting on his own right, not assisting on his own prerogative, not assisting on how things could be for him, but laying that aside for the sake of what could be for others, for us. That's the example. Now, yeah, but that's Jesus, right? That's not, is that a fair example? I mean, can you imagine growing up as Jesus' brother? I mean, think of it. You're James or you're Jude and you're growing up and can't you just hear Mary? Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> and these boys are thinking, come on, Mom, I don't have it in me. And we didn't have it in us. Except now we do. Oh my. Things have drastically changed. Out of what we read earlier, everything is different now. That, that work out your salvation for it is God who works in you. God is at work in us both to will and to do. We're going to come back to that, but hold on to that fact. What, what couldn't be for, for James or Jude, before the cross at least, now is true. And we can be, a step at a time, more like our brother Jesus. Think of it. That which would, there nothing more would give God greater delight than we as his children walking in the truth as seen in Jesus. Nothing would give God more delight than as we, his children, showing a little more, something more, here here a bit, there a facet, of Jesus himself in our lives. What does it look like? Laying down ourselves in some way. Giving of ourselves sacrificially. Willing to yield for the sake, for the better of somebody else. That's the life of Christ lived out in Real life. I'll give an example of that. It's maybe not, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this, but I'll, I'll pick on this one because she's not here today. I was joking with somebody earlier. My wife left me. She went to North Carolina. She'll be back Tuesday. Don't get too excited. Don't go tell the elders. The, um, while Julie's away, I'm very busy at the house doing flooring, getting, getting the flooring down before she gets back. I wanted to surprise her, although I'm no good at surprises. I already told her. <laughs> but anyway, several years ago, I, I, Julie's not here, so I could tell the story. Um, don't tell her. <laughs> Ten years ago, maybe-ish, I'm not sure. There was a need in the pre-K department. They needed, they needed somebody, the person that was leading couldn't lead that area anymore. They needed somebody to step in. And uh, Julie wasn't working in pre-K, I don't think, at the time. She wasn't really doing anything with that, but she, she was aware of the need and it was kind of hung out there for a while. And, and she said, I'll do that. And she's been stuck there ever since. Well, not stuck there ever since. She's stuck there with Hugs from kids who love her. Who, she, 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 she gets up earlier every, every Sunday morning and she's working on stuff during the week for pre-K. And, and uh, all that she gets out of that is these kids who learn something about Jesus 
in the hour or two they're in pre-K on Sunday morning and who love Miss Julie because she loves them. And Miss Julie tells them something about Jesus. And they hear it from her because she obviously cares for them. I mean, she gives them goldfish crackers, right? (laughs) What could be better? It's a little thing. And that little thing is repeated over and over in one place after another in this church. It happens among men and and among women. It happens in the nursery and it happens at Awana and Sunday school and and a call during the week and an encouraging of a friend and a a rolling up your sleeves and helping Bob with his flooring. It occurs in all kinds of different ways. I'll give of myself, I give of my afternoon, I show up at somebody else's need. Our summer of service is built on that model, that we would strengthen what? The witness of of someone to their neighbor because we show up and out of nowhere we lay ourselves down to, to get some project and sometimes it's blackberries. Few things in the garden are worse. And yet we do that, and we, we go home with stickers in our hands and something, something in our hearts. Because nothing actually gives us greater joy than to participate in that life of Christ of giving something of ourself for others, Right? To live out the reality of our faith. This is our faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us and told us that if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself or herself and and, and take up their cross, their suffering for the sake of others and follow him that way because that's the way he's going. There's a lot of other ways we can go, but he's going that way. The giving of himself for others way. And if we want to follow him, it's going to be that way. See, there are many distractions. There are many other ways that we seek fulfillment. I I was telling folks in the last hour, I love to travel. I really enjoy it. I love going to a new place and Julie's okay and she just packs her bags and comes along. I love going to a new place and seeing someplace new. And yet... Oh, I build up to that trip. This is going to be so wonderful. If the pastor thing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a travel agent. And yet, after the trip, it's like, okay, that was fun, yeah. It doesn't really satisfy. The, the, um, we have a nice home. A nice home with going to be new floors, right? That's pretty cool. Many of you have nicer homes than we do. And yet in your home or mine, it's not the home that satisfies. What really, what really brings joy to heart is to sit in that home, to receive somebody in that home, our home, your home, and, and to, to share together about the things of Christ and how that works out, to give of ourselves in hosting and hospitality that they would see something more of Christ and him for them in their own lives, right? There's joy there that goes way above those new floors. It really does, right? To fill my joy, a joy that we end up sharing and living in ourselves. Jesus' example. An example shows us that not only (laughs) that's the direction of laying down, but it shows the result of it. 
Therefore, verse 9, because he laid his life down, therefore God has highly exalted him. God has given him a name that is above every name. What name is that? What name did God give him that was above every name because he laid his life down? Do you know? You're thinking Jesus? No, he had that name before he laid his life down. You're thinking the Christ? Ah, Peter called him that before he gave his life down. He laid his life down. I think it's in this passage. God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, whatever that name is, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess the name that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, he is. The servant is Lord. Peter tells us, Go and do likewise. Peter tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of God. You are never on your own. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will exalt you in due time. In due time. We can, there, oh, there is a consolation in Christ, absolutely. That consolation is, I can trust myself to him because he gave his all for my best. Why would I doubt I, what, is it to, what is it to take a risk? What is it to expend myself? What is it to give out of this time or energy or resource? What is that that God will not more than make right? I can give myself. I can humble myself in the sight of God because he will exalt in due time. In heaven, every tongue confess, every knee bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know what that refers to? In heaven, I understand that as the angelic realm. On earth, all humanity will confess. And even under the earth, the demonic realm, those who rejoiced among themselves and danced a jig when they thought they had finished, that they had put God's Son on a cross, they too, before the throne, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so won't God vindicate you? So won't God say that this one is mine? Doesn't God say in the book of Revelation that the one who overcomes, he will give him a stone upon which is written a new name? And the reason it's a stone and not papyrus, which Pergamum, by the way, was known as to be a center of producing papyrus. But this name would not be written on papyrus, which could easily be lost over time, but it would be engraved on a stone. It would be permanent. And this is a name that no one else knew. Only God had this name for you. You know, there's a closeness of relationship. In the midst of our being together as the church, the bride of Christ before the throne, and yet there's still, all through eternity, an individual relationship that you and I will have with our God. And a name that is just between us. Oh, don't worry about the future. Don't worry about what today costs in light of it. Boy, that puts retirement in a whole new perspective, doesn't it? You know, we, we, we work to retirement. We labor and we work and we add more hours and we, we invest and we, we hold back and we save and we pile it up over here. And it dangerously looks like building bigger barns so that one day I can say, my soul, you have, you have gathered much. Now take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord says, fool, you fool. Don't be afraid to give yourself away. Don't be afraid 
to give what you have away. Don't be afraid to lay down your own life as if God cannot make it up. And I think more than anything else, as Jesus said, use what you have so that you might welcome others into eternal dwelling places. Imagine saying one day to somebody else whom you gave yourself for and they come walking in those gates of heaven because somehow your testimony was connected in their journey to faith in Jesus and their eternity has changed because of it and you welcome them into an eternal home. And nothing matters more than that. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Does the Christian life, does being a Christian make any difference in life? Oh, it makes all the difference. As we would be conformed into his image, Paul says, therefore, verse 12, as you have always obeyed. Where have we heard that word before? Obeyed, obedience. Well, that was just back in the previous verse. That was just back in the Jesus example section. That he became obedient. You see what he's doing? The therefore and the, and the re, re, return to that theme of obedience. He's, as Jesus was obedient, you be obedient. Humble yourself. Lay your life down for the sake of others. As you've done that, so do it. It will be worth it all. As you've obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And easily misunderstood. And thus, perhaps a dangerous verse. It's dangerous if you misunderstand it, and it's dangerous if you rightly understand it. If you misunderstand it, you can say, work out my own salvation. Yeah, Jesus died. That was good. That was a start, but now i got to finish it. i got work to do. i got to roll up my sleeve. I've got to try harder so that I can be worthy of the gospel. I am going to work my way into heaven, and you cannot. That cannot be what this verse. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, Paul is clear, lest any man should boast. So then. What does it mean to work out your own salvation? A salvation that is your own, a salvation that is yours. Already, you're not working for it, it's yours. The word means to demonstrate, to act out, to express, to take off the costume and be who you actually are in Christ. That's what it means. To work out your own salvation, that which demonstrates your salvation because it shows Jesus. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is the fear and trembling? Am I afraid? The fear and trembling, it's more, it's more of a respect, a reverence, and an honor. It was how the Corinthians received Titus in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says that and you received him with fear and trembling. Were they afraid of, 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 of Titus? Were they thinking that, hey, maybe, maybe Titus is packing? We need to be careful here? No, I don't think that was it. But they, they respected. They honored, revered Titus because Titus was a representative of the apostle. The apostle was a direct representative of Jesus, and he's Lord. And so we treat his representative with an honor and a respect, with fear and trembling. 
It's, it was Paul's attitude towards his own minister, ministry in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I was among you in fear and trembling because that which we do, this is serious. This matters. How I lived before you when you didn't yet know Jesus, that mattered for your eternity, and I took it seriously. That's what he's saying. Psalms 2 Verse 11 urges us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I can only imagine. There's an irony here, you know it. This, this particular letter, this book, the book of Philippians, that so eloquently urges us to humility, to give ourselves for others, to sacrifice, to take up our cross and follow Jesus this is the same letter that continually points to joy. Humility, sacrifice, suffering, waiting, enduring, these do not seem to be the ingredients of a joyful life, do they? And yet in Christ they are. It's one of the things that's changed. We actually will be most fulfilled as we give ourselves away for the sake of others. Because God has made us new. God has changed us. And Paul says, work out what God is working in you. Because it's the for in, in verse 13. For, because, on the basis of, it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work or to do for his good pleasure. It started with Paul's joy. It ends with God's pleasure because Paul has gotten kind of close to Jesus over the years. And how did he get close to Jesus? He explains a little more in chapter 3. He said, I even want to enter into his sufferings so that I may know him. Knowing him was what mattered most to Paul. And he learned more of him in participating in his suffering. So this passage tells us to do the same. It invites us, it calls us, it urges us to do the same, to live out the reality of our faith in Christ by Christ-like giving of ourselves for others. In the church, we have, you see it on the signs, you see it on the website, sometimes you'll see it across the bottom of the bulletin, that as a family in Christ, being changed by God's truth, impacting others by his grace. We are going to be worshiping together, and here you are. We're going to be growing together with other growing believers, and we're going to be serving together. And we're convinced that serving together is one of the means by which we will grow, because if we're growing in Christ's likeness, that cannot be done unless I'm laying my life down for somebody somewhere. I can't be more like the one who gave himself away if I'm not following the next step in his path. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. With that aspect of, of spiritual growth happens in worshiping together, growing together, and serving together. And part of growing together is serving together. I want it to be a, a habit in this church that we ask one another. As you're starting to get acquainted with somebody who's perhaps they're new here or perhaps they're just new to you. And as you make that acquaintance, somewhere along the line and getting to know them comes the, the invitation. Have you, found, have you found a place yet where you're 
able to serve together with others, to give yourself away for the Lord? Because that's not only where growth is going to happen, that is where worship happens. We're going to close with a song. It's a song you know. This is a song. It's called Offering. And in this song, this is the song that we normally sing when we receive the morning's offering because the song talks about, I give an offering of worship to the Lord. Let's put the chorus of that song back up on the screen. I bring an offering of worship to my king. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. So the worship we bring is an offering. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Lord, I bring an offering. I give my life an offering to you. The offering in this song is not the money that you would bring and give. The offering in this song is more the heart. And I want to suggest the offering that we bring, the offering that we sing of, the offering that gives God good pleasure, that fills his joy, is offering our lives for the sake of somebody. Out of my life, my strength, my energy, my time, I will give something of myself, not for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others. I will live out the reality of my faith. You'll live out the reality of your faith in Christ by Christ-like giving of yourself to others because that's where you'll know him. That's not only where you'll be growing, that's where you'll be worshiping. Father, would you open our eyes to see what is that place? What is that opportunity? Father, would you give even today, tomorrow, a chance where we would give ourselves away for someone and in so doing, they in our lives would see something of Jesus so that they too might know him. We pray it in Jesus' name.